First, I have to apologize for the last episode. I didn't go into half of what I wanted to. I could have gone into addiction and many other things, but no, I had to have a self-imposed deadline, and as a result, I produced crap. That's why I only release the episode when I'm actually done with it from now on. Maybe in the future I'll revisit the drugs topic and more fully explore it, but for now, here's something much less controversial. I hope you'll enjoy it. I also have to thank everyone for listening, as well as telling your friends. Keep it up, please. Thank you. Hey kids, want me to tell you a bedtime story? This is the story of a poor man and woman. They're so poor they don't even have names, just vague adjectives like poor ugly woman. One day they decide to have a child and they have the most beautiful little girl in the world. Years pass and the poor ugly woman decides she'd rather have a salad than her daughter. Her husband felt bad but didn't bother to stop her. So the woman finds a witch and exchanges a Caesar for her daughter. It's a good salad, not great but good. Meanwhile, the evil witch tries to eat the girl. It seems witches can't eat salad, but only children. Fortunately for the girl, the witch is really stupid, and instead of using her witchy powers to force the girl into the pot, she just tells the girl to get in the pot. The girl proclaims she doesn't know how, and when the witch attempts to show her, the girl clubs her over the head with a shillelagh and runs into the woods. She soon comes across a little house in a sylvan glen, and lets herself in as she was wont to do. Inside, she helps herself to the food and entertainment. Suddenly, seven burly men enter and ask why she's in their home. After a brief pause about why seven men live together, she agrees to cook and clean if she can stay with them. One day, she decides that she's nearly eight and she deserves to marry a prince. She concocts an overly complicated plan to get one. She spreads a rumor that a princess is under a sleeping spell lying atop ten mattresses soaked in urine and is trapped inside the tallest tower in the land. Only the kiss of a true prince can awaken her. Then she climbs into a nearby tower and plays the waiting game. Soon, Prince Charisma, Prince Charming's cousin, hears of her tale and heads off to rescue her. As a prince, he has no real job and must earn his keep by rescuing maidens in misery. Twelve short months later, he finds her. He climbs the tower and kisses her on the cheek. She pretends to awaken and immediately begins planning their marriage. This freaks the prince out so much he jumps out the tower and runs away. The girl has her seven men track him down, and the ceremony is performed at Arrow Point. And they lived happily all through the day. Shortly after the wedding, the princess realizes that the prince isn't what she thought he would be. He loves bowling through yonder glen, and she hates that. She would much prefer to partake of potted stews and wriggle her backside to the song of the lute. A youngling betwixt them will restore their marriage anew. But the birth of little Annabelle furthers their strife, both emotionally and financially, and since her only role models for parenting exchanged her for food, she knows little of how to properly raise a child. Out of desperation, she drowns the child in Yon River and commences hitting the ale hard and hanging around seedy taverns. She comes home late, filled with spirits, to a screaming prince. Life is not what she thought it would be. In a second moment of desperation, she intentionally eats a poison apple after pricking her finger on a quill and dies, and the rest of the family lived happily ever after. The end. That's not a real fairy tale, obviously. But up to the marriage, it was based on events from real fairy tales. Let's take a look at some of the stuff that we read to children with a critical eye. And I'm not concerned with the overwhelming violence in these things. That doesn't bother me much. Children should be aware that the world is a dangerous place, and that there are bad people out there. That's reality. 
I'm talking about the total lack of reality that these stories instill in our children, and how these seemingly innocent stories of hate and lust can influence a child's entire life. Let's start with The Princess and the Pea. I'm sure you know this one, but I'll paraphrase it and make rude comments along the way. This prince wants a wife, you see, so he gets a bunch of princesses to line up so he can gawk at them, but for some reason, he doesn't really believe they're princesses. So he travels the world to find one. He finds minute flaws in each one of them and decides they're not really princesses. These flaws include such heinous acts as one princess who eats too many chocolate truffles, one who doesn't ride side saddle, and one who has the audacity to eat grapes whole without getting her servants to peel them first. So he returns home completely disappointed. One night, there's a storm and someone knocks at the door. The king answers it. Oddly, he doesn't get his servant to do this, so maybe he's not a real king. There's a woman at the door who says she's a princess and she's lost. The king invites her to stay the night. The prince asks his mom to find out if she's really a princess. So the queen puts a single pea on her bed frame, and then ten mattresses on top of that. Now, a goat-milking peasant would think it odd to sleep on ten mattresses, and would probably comment on it. But not this princess, so apparently intelligence is not a sign of a real princess. Anyway, she was unable to get any sleep because of the pea under her mattresses, despite the fact that a pea would be crushed and would make no discernible difference on the top side. The next morning, the queen asks how she slept, and the princess replies, Terrible! It felt like a single grain of sand was on my bed! Then the queen tells the prince that he's got a real princess on his hand. He is delighted, so they get married. Notice that he didn't get her to ride a horse or eat some grapes. For all he knows, she loves to straddle horses while eating unpeeled grapes, more than she bitches about uneven furniture. The end. Now that was a truly great story, and it taught us all an important lesson. The most important thing in life is to make snap decisions about people. Focus on a single issue so that it becomes a make-or-break issue. In this case, the incredibly shallow prince only cared about the validity of her title. That woman didn't ride side saddle. She's a whore! Well, maybe you have better control of a horse by straddling it. Maybe that's preferable to dying from falling off. Just ask Christopher Reeves. No, I've made my decisions, and I know everything. You couldn't possibly know something I don't. No, don't bother trying to explain. Explanations are for unassertive lollygaggers and surf molesters. Good day to you, madam. Second, like most fairy tales, this enforces the idea that getting to know someone is just simply a waste of time. When you meet someone, everything will immediately click into place, and you'll know that they are the right one. Nothing could be farther from the truth. First impressions are usually based on looks, except for the blind, in which case it's based on sounds or feels. By definition of being a first impression, you can't really know much about the person. If in real life, I let some girl spend the night with me, and the next morning, based on the fact that she slept terribly, I asked her to marry me, she'd run for the hills, Ma Parker. She would think I'm nuts and probably have some serious issues. And she'd probably be right. At this point, you may think I'm making way too much of this. It's just a fairy tale. Yeah, you're right. It's just a fairy tale. However, this theme is repeated over and over again. Combine this with the real-world fathers calling their daughters their little princesses and their sons their little dragon slayers, you can see how impressionable children can grow up with that thought always in the back of their mind, thinking they will meet the right person and they'll know them immediately. But I'm sure you don't know anyone that completely flipped over someone after just meeting them, right? How about another famous one? Jack and the Beanstalk. See, it turns out Jack and his mom were poor, 
so they decide to sell their cow to use his money for food. Jack, take this steak to the store and sell it so we can buy some steak. Jack meets a guy on the way to town who says he'll give him three magic beans for the cow. Jack agrees without even learning what type of magic they possess. Does planting them grow gold bars? Does putting them in a stew give it a raisiny taste? Do they turn water into wine? Does eating them give him super genitals? Growing fast is pretty lame magic in my book. Rightfully so, when Jack's mom learns, she hurls the damn beans into the garden and they both go to bed hungry. The next morning, a huge beanstalk has grown upward as far as the eye can see. And when you think about it, Jack's next action makes perfect sense. He could A. Call his mom B. Go back to bed C. Climb it even though it goes up into the sky farther than he can see D. Pluck the giant beans from this beanstalk to use as food since that was the whole point of this stupid story or E. Go into town and try to lure women back to his house by bragging about the size of his stalk. Of course, the answer is C. Climb it. When Jack gets to the top, he finds a gigantic castle. He, like most fairy tale protagonists, has no problem entering other people's homes without permission. So he goes in and finds a large man. Suddenly, the large man proclaims, Fee, fi, fo, fum, I smell a little one, or Englishman, or whatever the hell, I don't know. It's interesting that giants have the innate ability to smell smaller creatures. I know I can smell ants and chiggers, but that's a fairly rare power, possessed only by me and three other people I work with. Having a very short attention span, the giant then commands his chicken to commence laying more golden eggs. As the giant carefully observes the golden-slash-calcium orb free itself from its poultry prison, it occurs to him that living on a cloud leaves very few places for him to spend his riches. To take a mind off his fortune that he cannot spend, he commands his living harp to play a song for him. The giant is soon asleep. Jack is watching all of this when he realizes that the giant possesses items that he does not. I must have them, he thinks. After swiping the bird and the harp, the giant wakes up and chases Jack. Jack somehow manages to outrun him, despite the fact that the Jack has a stride about 50 times larger than Jack, although the exact size of the giant is never given. Jack rushes down the beanstalk with the giant in tow and chops down the beanstalk and the giant dies. Some later versions of this story has the beanstalk merely breaking, as if that makes Jack's thievery okay. This same version has Jack's mom saying at the end that the fowl and the harp belonged to Jack's dad, but were stolen by a giant. The original story condones breaking and entering and theft. Hey, that guy's bigger than me, so it's okay if I take his crap and then kill him if he tries to stop me. Wow. If we substitute bigger with wealthier, then it starts to sound like a real-world excuse. Bet you never thought reading Jack and the Beanstalk would start your children on a path to armed robbery. It also condones treating people badly simply because they are different. The second version is even worse. After Jack has stolen the items, he's told that the giant stole them from his father. So, two wrongs make a right? Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that the night Jack's father died, his mom held young Jack in her arms and told him, Jack, a giant stole your father's singing doodad and that duck that farts jewelry. Always remember, never forget. So this teaches children that due process is just a waste of time. You don't need proof. Just one person telling you so. My mom said a giant stole my dad's stuff. This is a harp and a golden egg laying fowl. Therefore, it must have belonged to my dad. You know, 
Maybe Jack's dad and the giant shopped at the same ye olde store and bought two similar but different birds and harps. With everything else in this story, who's to say the local tavern doesn't sell all kinds of mystical crap? Maybe Jack's dad had a gambling problem and lost the items to the giant in a bet, then blamed it on the giant because he was too ashamed to admit what he had done to his wife. Maybe Jack's dad lied. Maybe Jack's dad had originally stolen the items from the giant and the giant was taking them back. These may sound ridiculous, but that's the point of due process, to take the time to understand the situation. Without due process, you have just a bunch of vigilantes roaming the countryside, taking your pelicans and oboes, claiming that you stole them. No, it's better to teach your children at an early age that life is all about making snap decisions. Don't investigate, just assume you know all the answers. Things are always how they seem. The guy with the eye patch fighting the old lady, he must be the antagonist. He's got an eye patch! Just as a side, ever think of this? Had the beans been thrown slash planted somewhere else, the beanstalk would have gone to a completely different cloud. It may have gone to the giant's neighbor's cloud, or just another more interesting cloud with blackjack and hookers. And if Jack hadn't chopped down the beanstalk, a giant bean might have fallen and crushed his house. Would his insurance have covered that? And wouldn't Jack be liable for the many deaths and property damage he caused when this 15-mile-high tree fell from his yard across four neighboring counties? And don't you think it's odd that none of his neighbors came over to investigate this giant plant the day it first appeared? And why would someone live on a cloud? Maybe the giant fled society to get away from judgmental, hurtful bastards like Jack. Anyway, let's look at another famous fairy tale. Rapunzel. Now this was originally one of Grimm's fairy tales, and I just happen to have that book next to me now. The real Grimm's fairy tales may not sound like the ones you know today, but the gist is the same. Notice the modern versions have tried to clean up some of the violence and parental neglect, but they're still missing some of the other really bad areas. Okay, here we go. As half of these things start out, a man and his wife want a child, but they can't have one. And if that weren't enough, they have a witch as a next-door neighbor. And she's used her witchy powers to create a really bitchingly awesome garden. The wife really wants to steal some of the witch's delicious rampion, which is type of salad ingredient. She dwells on this salad so much she thinks she'll die without it. So in an effort to keep her alive one more day, her husband decides he'll steal some for her. Now the concept of just asking the neighbor or purchasing it is foreign to these people. I want it, so I must take it. So he steals some, the wife eats it, and guess what? She wants more, greedy bitch. He goes again to get more, and gets caught this time. The witch is understandably upset, and the thief wants mercy. I only did it because my wife wanted it, he said. What a lame-ass excuse. They weren't even poor, just obsessing over offspring and vegetables. But the witch grants him mercy. But she says, you can have all my rampion you like, if you give me your first child and I'll care for her like a mother. That doesn't sound much like a witch. He agrees, and suddenly they get pregnant, and they name the child Rapunzel, which happens to be another name for rampion. And little Rapunzel lives with Witchy-Poo next door. At the age of 12, for some reason, the witch locks Rapunzel in a tower 90 feet high and uses her hair as a rope ladder. Years later, a prince cruises by and hears Rapunzel singing, so he tries to find a way in. He can't find one, but he eventually sees the witch yell to the girl to let down her hair and she climbs up. This witch must be in excellent shape. Just watch Fear Factor to see how hard it is to climb a rope. 
So the next day, the prince comes back and calls for Rapunzel to let down her hair, not knowing if the witch is inside or not. Anyway, he gets up there. Rapunzel, who's never seen a man before, is terrified. He tells her, I really like to sing, and will you marry me? She agrees because he's better than the witch, but doesn't know how to get out. So here, okay, listen to this. She develops this needlessly complex task of telling him to bring a single thread each time he comes. And in 48 years, she'll have three-eighths of a rope ladder. Here's a thought. Why not just bring a rope ladder the next day? Why not just tie her hair at the top and rappel down? Anyway, Sir Densalot leaves to get some thread. Later, Rapunzel stupidly lets it slip to the witch that she's seen the prince and... Boy, does this burn the witch up. The witch cuts off Rapunzel's hair, thereby sealing them both in the tower, but somehow takes her to the desert. So far, the witch's power amount to gardening and the ability to exit a tower without a rope. Then the witch goes back to the tower and waits for the prince. When he calls, she lets down Rapunzel's hair, and when the prince climbs up, she tells him, Rapunzel is gone! He jumps out the tower, lands in some thorns that blind him, and wanders for years until, for some reason, he meets Rapunzel in the desert. Well, he actually just hears her singing and recognizing it. She apparently had two children, I assume by him. The story doesn't go into when they had time to copulate. When she recognizes him, she touches his eyes, and they are healed. They go back to the kingdom, and they lived happily ever after. Wow, I'm not even sure to begin with this one. Of course, this again teaches that theft is okay. It also teaches mistrust and introduces children to rationalization. The bad kind of psychological rationalization, not the opposite of irrationalization. Your neighbor must be a witch. Her garden looks better than mine. Therefore, it's okay to steal from her. On the plus side, this introduces children to the concept that your parents may not really care for you. There are some people out there who don't want their children and drive them in the lakes. Horrible as it may be, this might teach kids to keep an open eye for any sudden trips to the, quote, candy factory, unquote. Lastly, again, this reinforces that love will hit you immediately. Your first impressions about a mate are always right. Things never go sour. Don't bother trying to get to know someone first. And in this case, Prince didn't even actually rescue her. His presence made the witch move her to a less secure location. So much less secure that as a blind man, he happened to stumble across her. My hero. Yep, ladies, that's true romance. You can only pray that someday a man will attempt to save you and instead become dismembered, only to locate you again by accident years later after you're no longer in any danger. Still doubting? Here's another famous tale told by pixies and imps around the campfire. Snow White. It starts off with a queen sewing with black thread in the snow. This is the most plausible beginning to any story ever. She pricks her finger and notices the contrasting red in the white snow and wishes for a daughter as white as snow, red as blood, and black as thread. She gets her wish. She births an albino with red lips and black hair. Yeah, the whole point is the girl is as white as snow. The queen names her Snow White and promptly dies. Now the king grows weary of spending Friday nights alone with his unpigmented daughter and gets remarried to a total self-centered bitch. She keeps asking her mirror, who is the fairest of them all? And it would always answer that she was. Now, when I ask the mirror something and it answers back, I realize that, in fact, I'm talking to myself. 
But hey, whatever gets your wench ass through the day. When Snow White reaches age seven, the queen asks the mirror who is the fairest, and it tells her Snow White is. The queen gets mad and pays some guy to take Snow White into the woods, kill her, and bring back her heart as a token. The guy chickens out, so he kills a wild boar instead and returns with its heart. The queen promptly eats it. Why? Snow White runs through the forest scared and eventually finds a house. Again, fairy tale characters do not respect other people's boundaries, so she lets herself in and notices the table is set for seven. She eats their food, drinks their wine, and then passes out in one of their beds. Hey, she's seven. She can't handle her alcohol. The dwarves who live there come home that night and notice someone's been there, and they say things like, Who's been eating from my plate? Who's been eating my porridge? Who's been sleeping in my bed? Yeah, you thought Goldilocks owned those lines. They find her in the bed and think she's so beautiful they don't wake her. When Snow White awakens on her own, she is frightened by the short, short men. She tells them her story, and they say if she'll cook and clean, SFCC, she can stay. She agrees. Remember, she's seven. Later, the queen asks her mirror who is the prettiest, and it rats out Snow White. So she dresses like an old woman and pretends to sell cheap crap in the forest. When she finds Snow White, Snow White doesn't recognize her and lets her in. The old woman isn't selling apples, she's selling lace clothing. She asks Snow White to try something on and helps her into it. But she ties it so fast and tight that Snow White falls down as dead, and the old woman beats Cheeks out of there. When the dwarves come home, they cut off the lace and Snow White comes back to life. Apparently, restrictive clothing isn't as lethal as a hot educated queen might think. Now let me point out that she's already sent some guy to murder her, so she's already made a fairly direct attempt on her life, Why can't she just stab her in the eye or something? She's proven to be a ruthless hag, but suddenly she becomes the most inept murderer on the planet. Anyway, the queen goes back and asks her mirror who is the hottest, is told of Snow White, and so she goes out as an old woman again, this time with a poisoned comb. Yeah, when tying someone up with underwear isn't fatal enough, try a hair grooming implement. This time... Snow White has learned her lesson, but refuses to let the woman in. But then quickly relents when the old woman shows her the comb. Wow, a comb. The sea hag combs her hair, and Snow White falls down. The hag leaves. The dwarves come back, see her on the ground, remove the comb, and Snow White comes back to life. So not really a poisoned comb, but a mild sedative comb. When the queen gets back home and asks the mirror who's got it going on, she is told that Snow White has it going on. She is so angry she makes a poisonous apple. And you have to be really angry to make a poisonous apple. It takes like twice the anger of making a poisonous comb, but still only half the anger of making a poisonous aardvark, the deadliest of all poisonous items. She poses as yet another old woman, but Snow White refuses to open the door. So the clever old woman says she'll give her half of an apple and Snow White can watch the old bat eat the other half first. Oh, by the way, the poison is only in one half of the apple. Guess which part the old bat will eat. Snow White, who's had two attempts on her life in as many days from peddling women, doesn't seem to recognize the pattern and falls for it again, eats the apple, and then falls down. Somebody get this girl a medical alert bracelet. The queen again returns home and asks the mirror who's all that in a bag of potato chips and is told she is. Well, as we know, Snow White isn't really dead, 
though apparently a really attractive person in a coma doesn't count as fair. When the dwarves find her this time, they think she is dead, but then notice her fair body isn't decomposing like the last three girls they tricked into cleaning their house, who was killed by an evil queen while they repeatedly left her home alone. So after a quick round of necrophilia, the dwarves put her in a glass box and stick her in the mountains. On a side note, I just have to point out that there is no more dignified death than being sealed inside a glass case in the mountains for all to see. Anyway, one of the dwarves stays to guard her. You see, back in the old days, you couldn't just leave a glass coffin with a little girl's corpse just laying around in the woods. Somebody would take it. So you had to post a guard for it. And wouldn't you know it, along comes a prince and asks to buy the coffin. The dwarf says no. The prince says, I'll treat you like my brother. The dwarf capitulates. You just can't get good dwarven guards anymore. So the prince's men carry the coffin away, and while they're jostling it through the woods, the piece of poison apple falls from Snow White's mouth, and she wakes up and springs up out of the coffin. Ah! She asks what has happened, and the prince tells her, although how the hell he knows is beyond me. All he knows of her is that her carcass was left in the Sylvan Glen with a midget attendant next to it. So guess what comes next? Wait for it. Let's think about this. You're walking in the woods, and you find a dead girl in a transparent crate. You purchase her, for God knows what, and then she turns out not to be dead. Hell, there's only one thing you can do. You get down on one knee and ask this seven-year-old girl to be your wife. Remember, she's seven. She agrees. After all, she's known him for nearly twelve minutes, and she's almost eight. Her looks won't last forever. Got to start settling if she doesn't want to wind up an old spinster living with seven short gay men. Queen gets invited to the wedding and sees that it's Snow White, and surprise, surprise, she is pissed. What is this lady's deal? This isn't really explained, but somehow the Queen ends up with red-hot iron shoes on and is forced to dance until she dies. The end. Bet you didn't see that ending coming, huh? Imagine how much better Howard the Duck would have been with that ending instead of that alien thing. Again, this teaches that if you meet someone especially someone exotic-looking like a deceased albino trapped inside a box like some sleeping medieval mime, then it's okay to fall in love with him immediately and start making life-altering decisions based entirely on their looks. Or at least the five-minute conversation you had explaining what she was doing in the box and where her panties are. Hell, Snow White could have sounded like Fran Drescher for all he knew. And how old was this prince? He could have been in his late 40s and his dad the king could still be alive, and he's marrying a seven-year-old. How much can you have in common with a seven-year-old? She's just discovering Hello Kitty, and he'll be learning about moat warfare and the economics of using molten lead as a weapon. Okay, let's take a break from all the seriousness and just listen to a classic grim fairy tale about a little girl who is consumed by a feral terrier while trying to get a relative inebriated. It's Little Red Riding Hood. You've all heard this one, but I'd like to paraphrase this one because... I never knew how this actually ended, and you may not either. I've only seen the Bugs Bunny, Animaniacs, and the Transformers do this, and they each have different endings, and none of them are how the original ends. This is the original grim fairy tale version of this. A little girl is given cakes and wine to take to her sick grandmother. Nothing is better than wine for the elderly invalids. The mom tells her not to run so she won't break the wine flask, but doesn't seem to mind sending her daughter into the dingo-laden woods alone. Little Red Riding Hood meets a wolf along the way. She's never seen a wolf and doesn't know to be afraid. 
The wolf asks her, where is she going? And she tells him, giving him very specific instructions how to get there. It's always a good idea to tell strangers details about your various destination. Here's my home address and the hours I won't be there. The wolf decides he wants to eat her and her food. Rather than attack her right there while she's unawares and completely vulnerable, he develops an overly complicated, failure-prone plan. He distracts her by pointing out the flowers and then darts off to Grandma's house. He barges in, eats the grandmother. That's just unappealing. Puts on her clothes, then sits in the bed waiting red. Now, most animals would be full after eating an entire grandmother, but not the wolf. Eventually, Little Red Riding Hood comes in and says, What big ears, eyes, and hands you've got. You live 20 minutes from me. I see you twice every week. I obviously notice there's something different with you enough to comment on it, and yet I'm clueless that you're not really my grandma. And then she says, What a large mouth you have, and the wolf eats her up. Yep, he eats her, and promptly falls asleep. I think little girls contain a lot of tryptophan. And he snores so loudly that a woodsman hears him. He instinctively thinks the wolf has eaten the old lady. So he takes a pair of scissors and cuts up the wolf's belly and out pops Little Red Riding Hood and Grandma. Gross. The wolf was still sleeping during all of this. Little Red Riding Hood quickly puts stones in the wolf's belly, and the wolf wakes up, runs, and dies from excessive stone weight. Little Red Riding Hood then says she'll never wander again. Later, another wolf approaches her, but she did not tarry and went straight to G-Ma's. The wolf goes to the door, posing as Little Red Riding Hood, not knowing that the tiny scarlet harlot is already inside, so they keep the door locked. Now, when you've trapped a blue-haired strumpet and her granddaughter in a cottage, the obvious way to defeat them is to climb onto their roof and wait for them to come out so you can pounce on them. Never mind that the fall will probably kill you, too. Just do it. But this is no ordinary old hag. She's already been ingested by a wolf and an armadillo this week so she dumps boiling hot dog water into a trough in front of the house. Naturally, the wolf smells the water and stretches his neck out so far that he falls off the roof and drowns in the trough. This story ends with, quote, Little Red Riding Hood went cheerily home, unquote. I don't have much to complain about that story other than the aforementioned plot holes. Ah, that was a nice break. Back to fairy tales that are a detriment on society. Here's a famous one you all know, and again, this is the original Grimm's version, Rumpelstiltskin. For no known reason, a poor guy tells the king his daughter can spin straw to gold. The king asks to see his daughter. She is brought in, but instead of asking to witness this miracle, the king locks her in a straw-filled room and expects to see results in the morning. I find that odd, because if someone told me something like that, my scientific mind would want to observe this phenomenon. Not just witness the results. And as we'll see, the king was in fact fooled. You see why you shouldn't just take people's words for things? Even when the miracle does exist, it may not work how you think it does. Anyway, once she's in the room, she cries. A man enters. She explains she can't do this. And he asks her what will she give him if he does it. She says her necklace and they agree. Now the interesting thing here is that there's already someone who can do this. And this guy seems to have access to the king's chambers, so he might already be employed by the king. Anyway, this little man spins the straw into gold, and the king is delighted the next morning. So naturally, after having a miracle proven, you still wouldn't want to see it for yourself. So he puts her in yet another straw-filled room and forces her to make more gold or he'll kill her. 
Makes sense. Show me the result of your trick or you die. Again, she cries. The man enters. This time, she trades him her ring. You know, if this little bastard can do this, why does he need her jewelry? He could just make his own at the stable. And why didn't he start out asking her for her baby? Or better yet, why didn't she just ask to be freed and leave the country? Regardless, the next morning, the king rejoices, and he puts her in yet another straw-filled room and says if she does this, she can be his wife and implies that she'll never have to do this again. He's greedy, but his greed has limits, apparently. He leaves, and again the little man appears. She says, got nothing, nada, so he asks her for her firstborn son. And like all women, she quickly agrees. He makes the gold, the king is pleased, they get married, and the king gives her what for a real good, and she births a baby. Later, the little man appears and demands her baby. She refuses and cries, Boo-hoo, I made a deal, and now that I've gotten my benefits, I don't want to follow through. You only saved my life, boo-hoo. The man feels pity for her and says that if she can figure out his name in three days, she can keep the child. So she sends out messengers to learn of all the names in the world, and later repeats them all to the little man. But none of them are correct. By the third day, her messengers return and say, There's no other names in the world. Oh, and on a totally unrelated note, I did hear this man singing about how he was going to take your baby and that his name was Rumpelstiltskin, but that couldn't possibly be important. Why didn't he say that to begin with? Upon being told his name, Rumpelstiltskin gets so mad, he stomps his foot so hard, it gets stuck in the ground. And when he tries to pull it out, he pulls so hard, he splits in two and dies. The end? That ending made less sense than Snow White's ending. What's with these irrelevant epilogues for the antagonist? After I got married, the bad guy eats a chili pepper, causing his intestines to explode, and the reigning feces became raspberry candy as they hit the ground. The end. Well, aside from the nonsensical ending, what's wrong with this? Well, one of the underlying themes here is that you don't need to worry, regardless of how bad things get. Someone will solve your problems for you. In this case, Rumpelstiltskin solved the gold-making problem, and then later, the girl gets her servants to find out his name. She did nothing in this story but cry and reproduce. Hell, howler monkeys could do that much. She didn't lift a finger to get herself out of this problem. And as always, this again reinforces that marriage is something not based on love. Well, in this case, maybe it was, but love of money, or, or gold. The king speaks to her three times. Each time he tells her to make him gold. The last time he appends, And if you do, I'll marry you, so that, should I ever need any more gold, I know where to get it. But not only that... Notice that the girl had no choice in the marriage. She never really accepts. She's locked in a room and told to perform. Then she's told she will marry the king. So it's also a chauvinistic story in that it teaches women their places to just be objects and their wishes and desires are not important. Would you want to marry a guy who locked you in a room and forced you to work for free? Then after you've made him rich, he proposes to you? Lastly, this also teaches that it's okay to break your word. She made a deal but then decided not to hold it after she had already reaped the rewards. Bitch. You talked me into it. One more. Sleeping Beauty. A king and queen really want a child. Then, while the queen was bathing, a frog tells her that she'll have a daughter within a year. It's always a good idea to at least consult a small amphibian concerning your carnal decisions. So the frog's prediction comes true, and they have a beautiful daughter. The king has a feast to celebrate! 
All the women give the baby gifts, but one uninvited bitch curses the child, saying, On her 15th birthday, she will prick her finger with a spindle and fall down dead. <laughs> the next lady in line says, Well, she won't die, but she'll sleep for a hundred years. Apparently, all you have to do is say something, and that'll make it happen. Why didn't she just say she'll only sleep for 18 and a half minutes? Why the hundred years? So the wise king burns all the spindles. You know, he's got 15 years. Maybe it would be easier to wait until she was 15 and then keep her in seclusion for a year than to burn all the existing spindles and hope that no one replenishes a single one sometime over the next 15 years. 15 years! Well, 15 years later, the king and queen leave the girl alone. She wanders into the tower and finds an old lady spinning flax on a spindle. You can guess what happens next. Maybe if the king had been more diligent during the 15th year instead of the first year, this wouldn't have happened. But in addition to the child going to sleep, the entire kingdom falls asleep too. Bet you didn't know that. The horses and the pigeons are asleep also, and a bunch of thorns grow and covers the entire castle except for the tower. Now many people try to save the princess, but they all die from the thorns. A hundred years later, a prince comes along. Apparently only a prince can get things done in these stories, and how many kingdoms are there to keep this steady flow of princedom rescuing all these injured women? But anyway, this prince hears of the princess and decides to save her. When he approaches the thorns, they turn into flowers. He finds everyone asleep and then locates the princess. He kisses her. She wakes up. Then the prince marries this 115-year-old girl who's mentally 15. He saved her by being the guy that came when it was time for her to wake up anyway. She was going to sleep for a hundred years. So on the hundredth year, he arrives. He didn't really do anything. The end. Again, this reinforces not making any effort to get to know someone. Instead, your Prince Charming will come along and save you. And by save you, I mean he'll be the one standing over your bed watching you sleep when you wake up on your own. Think about that, women in the audience. If you're a 15-year-old girl... How would you feel if you woke up one morning and found some strange guy kissing you and claiming to be a prince? Yeah, that'd go over like a truckload of dead babies. So now I've rambled on, what's my point? Am I really down on these innocent stories? No. Let me emphasize this. I do not think these stories are the downfall of society. I do not think they are the cause of most problems. I do not think you should stop reading these to your children. I mean, my parents never read these to me, and look what happened. I make jokes comparing a girl's corpse to a street mime. But, I think you should consider, when you do read these to your children, they may be gleaning something from it that you yourself may have gleaned and forgotten. Let me ask you something. Do you think if a young, impressionable child is told something over and over again, they might start to believe that there is at least some truth to it? There are several common themes in these stories. Women are inferior and cannot take care of themselves. Men must constantly look out for women. Everyone should get married to the first person they can as fast as they can. Everything will be perfect if you just get married. Making snap decisions is okay, be it for justice or for relationships. You're thinking I'm reading way too much into these. Allow me a tedious retort. Did you know, or do you know, any teenage girls that sit around talking about getting married to some guy they've only known for a couple of weeks? This wasn't uncommon when I was in high school. Marriage was a destination for them. To me, marriage isn't a destination. 
It's a formal legal union between two individuals sharing a common bond that incessantly grows over the course of the individual's lives. But I'm an old softy. For many women, getting married is very important. You'll say, no, that's the maternal instinct. No, the maternal instinct makes them want to give birth. Where in the genetic code does it tell them that they need a marriage certificate and a finger trinket? Instincts are not about ceremonies and jewelry. An instinct might make you want to pair up with another being and raise a family, but you can do that without being married. Now, there are some financial and legal benefits to getting married, but teenage girls aren't thinking about that when they're writing their full married names over and over again on their algebra book. How many Lifetime movies have you guys in the audience had to watch where a bunch of women sit around insulting men because they were afraid of commitment? What's commitment? The guy never has a problem living with them and sharing responsibilities and finances. That's a commitment. No, it's marriage that the women are after. So I'm dissing marriage. No, I have nothing against marriage. I do have a problem with anyone that jumps into marriage without thinking, without getting to know the other person. With the divorce rate as high as it is, maybe it's a bad idea to teach children that they'll find true love immediately and end up living happily ever after. In many fairy tales, the woman's main part in the story is to sit back as her parents give her away, she gets locked up or is cursed for a hundred years, then eventually a prince rescues her and then marries her. I propose that as a little girl, hearing dozens of these tales plants a seed in the little girl's mind. That seed grows to tell her that her goal in life is to get married to the first person who rescues her. This may account for many women becoming extra clingy. This seed reminds girls that the perfect end for her life is to marry a handsome prince. It whispers that if she mimics this fairy tale, she will be happy. It does not tell her that he should treat her well or that she is actually going to be happy. It tells them that happiness will fall in their lap. Do not try to find happiness. Wait for it. Wait for it. This same seed is planted in little boys' minds. It tells them that women are inferior, and they must be taken care of. They're constantly getting themselves into some form of trouble, and only men can resolve the problem. Let me put it another way. You think kids ever play where the boy is the knight and the girl is the princess? In this scenario, the boy, as a knight, must cross hostile lands, journey to distant places, and eventually battle a fearsome dragon that looks suspiciously like a ficus plant. The girl, as princess sits in a treehouse pretending to be under a spell. The knight takes an active role in his life. In order to reach his goal, he has to fight for it. The princess just lays back and waits until it's all over. And notice that for the girl, not only does she not participate in her own destiny, when she does get rescued, the game is over. Now most girls will tire of this simply because of the boredom. But the idea of playing knight and princess seemed appealing at first. Why does it seem appealing? Because it sounded so great in the stories she's read. What? The stories where she's traded for salad, has numerous attempts on her life, and eventually winds up just laying there until some man saves her from her misery? When you say it that way, that doesn't sound so romantic. But that's not what the little girls are focusing on. Oh, I'm not just saying it's these ancient fairy tales. Movies are the same way. Serendipity, Hope Floats, Sleepless in Seattle, Harry and the Hendersons... All teach women that the right man is just going to fall in your lap and you don't have to get to know them. Meet him and write your name on a bus pass and throw the pass in a trash can. If he ever finds it, it was meant to be. That's just not realistic. Now as an adult, we should know better. But children aren't fully developed. Maybe by reading these stories to them, you're actually training them. 
they hear these tales, and they always end with, they lived happily ever after, and that starts to form at least a part of their model for how life should be. How often do you think a parent says at the end of one of these stories, That's not realistic, Judy. If you actually married this guy, he'd probably stay out all night drinking, cheat on you with your best friend, and then post nude pictures of you on the internet after promising me it was over between them. Okay, I hear you. Part of life is learning that you have to get to know someone. You have to get experience somehow. True. Most people learn these and eventually move on. Just so you heard me, I do think most people are not permanently scarred from the horrors that are Tinkerbell and the Princess. But tell me, where else in life, as a teenager or even adult, do you expect to succeed at something on the first attempt? Did you expect to hit a home run the first time you swung a baseball bat? Did you expect to drive a manual transmission perfectly the first time, or parallel park? Did you expect that you'd be hired right after your first job interview? Typically, we learn things take practice, especially relationships. It takes practice to even know what you want. But it seems to be part of our society that you can expect to find Mr. or Mrs. Wright on the first try. This concept is repeated all throughout our childhood in stories and movies and especially in romance novels where a time-traveling woman teaches an Indian how to read. I'll grant you that learning this is part of life. I must emphasize, I think most people learn this lesson. But you should at least consider that as a child, repeatedly hearing the same basic tales incessantly can start to reinforce them that stealing is okay if you suspect the person is bad, that relationships are sealed during the first certs encounter, and making snap decisions leads to happiness. I'm not saying fairy tales are bad. Actually, I am. I think they're completely ridiculous, and they could be just as fantastical without being so ludicrous. But that's just my personal opinion. Maybe a child hasn't yet learned the difference between fiction and reality. Maybe when you read these stories to them, you should make a point of explaining to them that these people in these stories are creepy. Not the witch, the prince and princesses, and the kings and queens. In reality, if you married the first person you met, you'd probably end up hating each other. You need to take the time to get to know one another. In addition, many of these princesses are very young. They don't even have any interests yet. How can you be interested in someone when you yourself have no interests? What could you possibly have in common besides the ability to exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide? And yet, this gets little girls thinking that they'll meet Mr. Wright sooner rather than later, which may also account for why women seem to take singlehood so badly when they get older. As a parent, you should want your child to be happy in life. Hiding reality doesn't help them. Perhaps you can help them find happiness faster if you let them know sooner rather than later the realities of relationships. You need a way shattering their innocence with letting them hit cold, hard reality after years of building up this expectation. I have personally learned that the worst thing you can do to someone is not live up to their expectations, so maybe I ought to go have that talk with Missy right now. Instead of just reading these stories to your children out of tradition, First, consider how the concepts in them might be setting up your child for a lot of prejudices that will be with them throughout their adult life. Visit our website at logicallycritical.com. Send feedback to podcast at logicallycritical.com.